Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 154 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Bernie Clark. Bernie Clark has been teaching yoga and meditation since 1998. Prior to that, he worked at one of Canada's oldest and largest high-tech companies. He has a strong interest in the convergence of embodiment and, and science. And many of you also know Bernie as a prominent yin yoga teacher. The end of last season, season one, episode 147, Jason and I did an episode where we kind of talked through Jason's take on yin yoga, and it got a mixed response in the community, and we got a lot of requests to talk to Bernie. So you asked, we listened, and this is a conversation with Jason, Bernie, and myself. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to Bernie is because we felt like after doing that episode and seeing some of the responses, like, hmm probably would have been better before we went through some of the potential pitfalls of Yin to have Bernie on together with us so we could ask him directly, you know, about some of our concerns and so that we could also kind of highlight the benefits. I think that Jason wanted to highlight the benefits in his episode, and that was our intention, but it wasn't necessarily perceived that way. And I think another reason that was really helpful to have Bernie on at the same time is that you'll see that there's convergence on issues more than there is differences of opinion. There are still some differences of opinion, but that's okay. Can we all agree in the yoga community that it's okay to have differences of opinion? I think it's important that we agree that that's okay because that's how we grow. I mean, I guess I should say, I think it's okay to have differences of opinion as long as you stay open and as long as you talk to people directly and as long as you're respectful. That's just something that I really, really believe in and I think is important for the growth and evolution of any subject matter. So stay open and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We really did. And just a big, genuine, sincere thank you to Bernie for coming on the show. Well, Bernie, thanks so much for being patient and thanks for talking to us today. So. Sure. I want to say that Jason and I did our, our yin episode and we had this really nice outcome, which is that we were introduced to you by all of your students who adore you. And I mean that sincerely. Like Jason was like, wow, people love this guy. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> don't mess with Bernie. <laughs> and, you know, it was interesting, right? Because one of the things when we did the our episode, one of the things was that I didn't really want to include specific names, right? And yet the polyzinc name came up and we talked about that. But interesting in all of the feedback that we got that was critical of the episode or critical of elements within our discussion, everyone wanted us to have you on. Yeah. I'm sure other people in the yin community are really loved and respected, but yes. clearly yeah. you were the go-to person. And there's one more thing I want to say before we start, which is that I think in retrospect, you know, Andrea and I are so used to having critical conversations. And one of the things that I have been for years is very critical of the vinyasa world. And I am a vinyasa teacher, so I am critical of elements within my own discipline. And I'm even critical of my own process over the years because it's something that I'm always wanting to figure out what are the challenges that the discipline that I teach presents how can I step backwards from it objectively? 
and start to deal with those issues and, and make what I see as course corrections or upgrades. And I think that in retrospect, Andrea and I's naivete in having the conversation without was that we didn't realize actually how polarizing it was going to be. And we didn't intend it that way. And so one of the things that we're looking forward to, and, and, you know, I have a strong point of view, I think we all do. So I'm okay with collegial disagreement. And that's one of the things that I want us to do is I want us to role model, especially in this polarizing world that Mm -hmm. we can have conversations and those conversations might change minds or they might not change minds and they can live separately. But, yeah, but there still can still be, be discourse and right. that's really important. And to you us. can still be colleagues and like, yes. we can all still have conversations and disagree. And that's totally, that's okay. At least. Yes. Yeah. yeah. From my perspective. For sure. Yeah. Okay. I also just want to touch on Polyzinc. I think Jason mentioned that Polyzinc was part of the origin story of yin yoga. And you mentioned to me that that is not so much the case. So I'm wondering if you can talk about kind of where we were incorrect in that and like, defining what yin yoga is now? I think the origin of yin yoga is a, a great topic. It's one that I get asked a lot and a lot of people do. And Paul Grilly deliberately tried not to organize yin yoga or own it or control it. In fact, uh, we checked with the U.S. Patent Office and Trademark Office to see if it was possible if somebody might one day trademark yin yoga. And we were hoping the answer would be no, and that's mm-hmm. what it was. It came back. Yin is a description. It's like white or hot. Nobody can trademark hot yoga. You can trademark a name like Bikram yoga or Iyengar yoga, but you can't tra- trademark an adjective. Mm-hmm. So many things can be yin-like. Many things can be called yin yoga, and they are. And restorative yoga, yeah, I know some studios now are calling restorative yoga yin yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fine. It's yin-like compared to Bikram's or Vinyasa yoga, so that's cool. Um, Pauli Zink used to call his yoga Taoist yoga. And then over the years, he changed the name of it to yin and yang yoga. And then in around 2007, he changed the name to yin yoga. And he's totally within his rights to do that. You can call anything yin yoga. But I like to say that the style of yoga that I was taught by Sarah Powers and Paul Grilly is yin yoga PG, sort of in brackets. I don't mean parental guidance. I mean Paul Grilly. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you did. Me, me too. So that, me too. I was like, I want to know what yeah. yin rated R Where's is. Where's the NC-17? <laughs> yeah, yin yoga is not R-rated. No. Put that right over front. It's not restricted. Almost anybody can do it. But when I talk about yin yoga, I'm talking about yin yoga PG. I'm not uh, talking about okay. restorative yoga. Oh, okay. I'm not talking okay. about Polly Zink's yoga. I spent a couple of weekends with Polly Zink. His yoga is amazing. I, I loved his practice. But it's not yin yoga PG. They're very different practices. And nobody invented yin yoga. I mean, you go back to the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, there's 15 asanas described there. Eight or nine of them are seated poses meant to be held for a long time. Well, that's yin. They didn't use the term yin, but it's yin-like. If you dial ahead a few centuries, Theo Spinard in the mid-20th century, he talked about holding poses for a long period of time. Mr. Yangar in Light and Yoga, several times he says, Hold the pose as long as you can. Or he gets more specific and says, Supravrasana, which we call saddle pose in the yin world, he says, hold that 10 to 15 minutes. Well, that's yin yoga. Mm. So nobody's invented this, but Paul Grilly and Sarah Powers put the label yin yoga to it. And I believe Paul was the first one to actually come up with the idea that, you know, you can make a whole class of this. 
yoga throughout the ages have always had yin poses in them. And Polly Zink introduced Paul Grilly to the fact that you could hold a pose for a long period of time. And that's part of his Taoist yoga, his martial arts training, or whatever you want to call it. But Paul was the first one to realize, I can make a whole class of this, including opening meditations, counter poses, shavasana at the end. And then Paul worked out why this is valuable from a physiological point of view, anatomical, energetic, meditative. And he was the first to actually create a yin yoga class. So while there's a lot of things that are, and again, yin yoga PG, he was the first to put all this into a class. And that's the style of yoga that I'm qualified to talk about and to teach. Okay. I'm not qualified to talk about Polish thing, although I've experienced his practice. I'm not trained in it. I'm not even a restorative yoga teacher, so I'm not really qualified to, to talk about that. But in the yin yoga PG world, I think I can offer a few comments on that. How do you delineate between restorative practice and yin practice? Again, restorative yoga can be considered yin-like compared to other ones. But my understanding from the, the readings I've done with Judith Lassiter and a few others is that restorative yoga is basically to not stress the body. Mm-hmm. It's to take all the stress off. It's meant to be a relaxation physically, mentally, emotionally. And so it has a different intention. One way of saying it is it's to take someone who's somewhat broken and make them healthy. Whereas Jin Yoga PG is to take someone who's already healthy and make them optimal, hmm. make them optimally healthy through the use of stress. In Yin Yoga, we want you to feel discomfort, not pain, but we do want to challenge the tissues. We want to put a stress into the tissues. And so it's quite different than restorative yoga where they want to take the load off the tissues. So in my experience of Yin, um, one of the things that I see as a point of differentiation is because I studied Iyengar yoga for a long time as well. So in Iyengar yoga, there are long held duration postures, but there's a much different tonal quality in Supta Virasana versus Saddle, or there's a much different tonal quality in Upavishta Konasana in an Iyengar room where we're going to hold it for 10 minutes versus a Yin room. So I think that this is an interesting point of delineation to to have a greater understanding of. So for me, my understanding of yin was that yin was a little bit more, wasn't just about the duration of a posture held, but the quality of tone with which it is held. Like in the muscles and the soft tissue. Yeah. There's three main tattvas or principles that we employ in yin yoga. And this is something that Sarah Powers did a good job codifying. The first is come to your edge. Now, yin is by its very nature not extreme. It's the opposite of extreme. A lot of yoga, especially in the vinyasa world, takes it to extreme. I did ashtanga for five years. I know how extreme that could get. Mm-hmm. Yin yoga dials that way back. We come to an edge. It's your first stopping point. The intention isn't yet to your maximum range of motion. That's yang. Yin is just come to the way you, you feel something. Then become still. That's the second principle. And then we hold for time. Now, time is the magic ingredient. Time is more important than intensity. So it's non-muscular. It's just where the body allows you to go. We're using gravity, not our muscles. So unlike Uptavishta Kanasana, where you engage the thighs, you point the knees up, flex the feet with a straight spine, fold forward from the hips, all that's very muscular. In yin, we don't call it Uptavishta Kanasana. We call it straddle fold. You just spread the legs apart and fold until you stop. No muscular engagement, just relax into it. 
you want to feel something, but you're not engaged. And that's why we have different names in the yin world for these postures. Because if we said to everyone, okay, welcome to our yin class. Today, we're going to Upavishta Kanasana. All the Astangis would immediately go into Upavishta Kanasana. And we'd have to say, okay, now back off a bit. Mm -hmm. And they'll look up at you and say, well, David Swenson told me it this way. And so we say, okay, this is an Upavishta Kanasana. This is straddle. Have you done straddle before? Uh, No, what's that? Oh, well, let me show you. Relax the legs here. Where should the feet point? I don't care. Let the feet go where they go. How should the knees point? I don't care. Just relax the knees. So we're not worrying about alignment. We're not worrying about muscular engagement. We're just coming into a shape with the intention of creating a bit of a stress into the connective tissues. Right. So let me ask you a question on this, because this is something that's interesting to me, which is, you know, the finding your edge, which Sarah has spoken about and and comes from the world of Joel Kramer and, and his article, Yoga's Transformation, right? So when we come to a threshold, time produces intensity. So for me, especially as someone that has more of a motion restricted body, I'm more of a high tone, high restriction body type. And I always have been despite. That's that's Jason's very kind way to himself of saying I'm tight. (laughs) I'm a tight guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I tell myself when I'm before I cry myself to sleep. (laughs) So, right. So for me, being in straddle and only coming to my threshold without active engagement of my hip flexor mechanisms. If I am going to stay at that first initial point of resistance for 30 seconds, that is very mild. For a minute, it is still mild. Minute two, it's getting a little less mild. Minute four, it really, to me, uh, mechanically and psycho-emotionally, is no longer that mild state. So when I said on the podcast, and I think I, maybe I overstated it, but I I don't want to walk it back just yet that, (laughs) right. Is that I actually, in my experience of yin, find it to be unlike restorative yoga, a la Judith Lassiter and the propping mechanisms. I find it to not be intense within the early moments, but that time builds intensity. And I kind of think about it as, as like a slow cook or a braise of something which is, right, you can cook something at a hotter temperature short for a shorter period of time or a lower temperature for a much longer period of time. But in the end, they both get deep. And so I'm kind of interested in understanding that, yes, it is intentionally a mild threshold, but you do keep it in the oven. You keep those poses in the oven for a long time in order to build a certain amount of intensity So in the end, in my experience of it, it still nets out as a demanding practice. Oh, yeah. Yin yoga is simple, but simple does not mean easy. Agreed. We are are challenging the body. We want to feel stress. Sure. Uh, Later we can talk about, I deliberately use the word stress, not stretch. Yeah, I think we we can clarify our language because I think probably a lot of disagreement is comes down to talking past people with language. So so we we can get to that point. So you want to feel some discomfort. That's a sign that something's happening. Again, this is not restorative. You want to feel something. Now, when you play the edge, a la Joel Kramer, although he wasn't necessarily talking in a yin context, when you play the edge, you can be too deep and you need to back off sometimes. Or you can be too shallow. You need to go deeper. But one of the benefits of yin yoga is it teaches the student to pay attention to what's going on in the body. I was once told that beginners should do yin yoga because 
it teaches them how to pay attention to the body. Mm-hmm. In a vinyasa class, you're only in the pose for five or six breaths, and you're worrying about alignment and where should my feet be, and now you're on to the next pose. In yin, you got four or five, six minutes to actually pay attention. What am I doing to myself? Is this good? Is it bad? Is it Should I go deeper? Should I back off? This gives the student a chance to learn how to fly her plane mm-hmm. instead of just listening to ground control telling her, okay, now you got to move the left aileron. Now, I'd rather have the students figure this out, and I'm just kind of ground control guiding them. Is it too deep? How do I know if it's too deep? Is it painful? Is it sharp? Is it burning? Is it dull? Is it achy? Is it stabbing? You know, these are signs that you're too deep. You're about to hurt yourself. This old saying in the West of no pain, no gain. I like to say when you translate that into Sanskrit, it's rendered bullshit to heat. <laughs> pain. The body's trying to tell you to stop doing that. So don't go to where it's painful. But yeah, we want a challenge. What does that mean? Different students have different spectrums of how much they can tolerate. And over time, they're going to have to learn this for themselves. All I can do is kind of guide them on that. But yeah, you want to feel something. If you're cooking, if it's becoming too much, back off. If you're not getting anything, you know, go to your next edge. Play it. Play the edge. And by the way, that edge may be physical, but it may also be emotional mm-hmm. or psychological. Sure. So Bernie, I'm kind of the opposite body type to Jason. I came to yoga very flexible, especially in my hips from just years of ballet. And one of the things I notice in myself, and I just wonder uh, as a yin teacher, how you help people with this is when I was younger, <laughs> this is not the case anymore, but when I was younger, if I did something like Upavishta Konasana, I couldn't even necessarily feel an edge. And then perhaps after class, I was in pain, but not necessarily during. So I just wonder how you help or, or guide a student with that kind of scenario. Well, first of all, you just we have to admit that you're cursed by being flexible. Yeah, That's, I think um, so. Apparently, you know, you, you flop down to the floor in this wide leg straddle fold and you don't feel anything. And all the rest of us, I'm like, Jason, we struggle. <laughs> you're paying just as much as everybody else and you're not feeling anything. And, and I, I struggle with good at, being, have, maintaining strength. So I do have my own, you know, I definitely yeah. have some pitfalls for sure. But I have it on good authority that in your next lifetime, you're going to come back as a normal person and you'll understand what we feel. <laughs> exactly. I'm already you know what getting she does? there. I'm just, this is a total <laughs> aside, but like she will do something of like, okay, we're just in the living room and she'll just do a long Pachimotanasana where her torso's on her legs. Right. She'll look like she's asleep and then she'll come out and she'll say, Oh, I feel so tight. Today. I do though. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> now I do feel things in my late forties. Right. Yeah, I do. yeah, it's different. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I often have people that are similarly afflicted, Andrea. I've had Cirque du Soleil people and dancers, uh-huh. but the intention of the practice is different for them. When a Cirque du Soleil performer comes to my in class, they're not coming to get more range of motion. They already have all the mobility they're ever going to need. They're coming to be quiet, maybe work the energy body, maybe to be in community, to just relax. Because, you know, they're out there every day exercising and doing their preparations for their performance. They don't need more mobility. Mm. So the same with you. You're not trying to get more open. But as you notice, as you get older, even hypermobile people start to stiffen up. Mm-hmm. And, and they can feel it. So at some point, you might realize, you know, I can't quite make it to the floor as easy as I used to be. Should I stay here? So now you'll start to get a little glimpse of what us normal people feel like. Mm-hmm. And again, it's going to come down to what your intention is. Why are you doing the practice? Maybe it's just you've had a busy day and you just need something to, to release. And that way, it's, it is kind of restorative for you because you're not feeling anything physically, but you're getting the mental and the emotional restoration. Yeah. 
This brings us to when we did our previous conversation, Andrea and I. This brings us to the only two concerns that I had with some of the mechanisms within Yin, right? And I think, as I spoke and we'll speak later, I think that there are incredibly valuable components to the Yin discipline, as as there are countless other styles of yoga. Mm-hmm. But this starts to enter the territory of the first concern, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it, which is, for me, what I felt like, and again, this is this is a bit of a reductionist conversation, or it's going to be a bit of a reductionist conversation, because I think it's a given that whatever style of yoga someone resonates with is psycho-emotionally, energetically, spiritually valuable, right? And, and that all of those dimensions are so deeply important and that that shouldn't in any way be undermined by a couple of mechanical concerns I have. So let me get your thoughts on when I spoke to saying one of the things that I don't encourage is I don't encourage passively stretching muscles that don't have sufficient tone to control the body weight at end range. So another way of thinking about this is, especially in the sports medicine world, the last thing that we really want to do is to stretch muscles that are weak prior to first building up a fair amount of eccentric strength. So what are your thoughts about, so rather than kind of going back and forth on this point, unless we want to, if you had a student who was spent a lot of time at the office, didn't do any type of strength training, you were able to see that that student's posterior chain was just fairly weak because they weren't doing anything that creates a certain amount of tone and that that student did have a fair amount of mobility. Would you recommend that that student just does a yin-based practice or would you also recommend to that student that they do either some type of young activity like swimming or resistance training or a young or also complement yin with a young-based asana practice? Or would you feel comfortable feeling like the yin was sufficient? Well, I have a little saying that I love. Beware the binary. Sure. Beware the binary. Yin and yang are both needed for balance. Sure. You can't do only yin. You can't do only yang. You need both. In my view, in my own personal exercise regime or health, physical fitness, there's three kind of orthogonal modalities I work on. First is endurance, so I may run sprints. I used to do ashtanga, but I found I kind of plateaued when how much my heart rate would go up. So I run, or maybe I do stairs and stuff like that. The second is strength. And I found, again, using yoga, I kind of max out with my own body weight. So now I swim kettlebells and do handstands and push-ups. And the third is mobility. For that, I use the yin practice. So I would never say only work on mobility or only work on endurance. I think you have to work on a balance of all three, endurance, strength, mobility. So I would never say just do yin or never say just do yang. However, in the yoga world, there are youngsters, as I used to be, <laughs> sure, 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 that sure. you know like to get up before the crack of dawn and go off and do two hours of Mysore every morning and come home at six o'clock and run for a, you know, a couple of kilometers and get to bed by midnight and they're up again at 4 a.m. the next morning. These people need a bit more yin in their life. Yeah. But yeah. there are youngsters who get up at the crack of noon, start the day with a scone or two, have a nap, and then go do a two-hour yin practice. <laughs> yeah. Have a nap. That sounds, like yeah. sounds like our dog. It sounds like our dog, whose, whose life <laughs> <Yeah>. I want. <laughs> they need more yang in their life. 
So yeah, I would never say always just do one or the other. You need both. Yeah. Definitely both. So well, the person you you're talking about, if they're weak in their back chain, yeah, they got to strengthen that. But you if know, you get other people who aren't strengthening their connective tissues, then they got to work that. The question is, what's the safest way to work the connective tissues? Well, I just want to say, like, I just appreciate you saying that so clearly. And I, I, I think that that was something that Jason and I were just trying to put across in our podcast. And it was not. Maybe you know, it wasn't skillfully enough. It maybe was not, yeah, said the right way. Or I think just perhaps like, as Jason said, because we're not yin teachers and yin practitioners, it just seemed like we were being critical from the outside. But that was that was really just one of the main points we were trying to uh, to get across to people. Because that in my in my experience of doing yin with Sarah many years ago, that was very clear. Like she she would incorporate a yin and yang within the same practice. Yeah. So that was always what I had had learned as well. It's kind of a fast forward, but you answered one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, which is, I just also wanted to ask you personally what your practice is like and and kind of how Mm -hmm. it's evolved. And what you just described is almost exactly what I do. I don't, like I work on my conditioning in in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I work Mm -hmm. on strength training at the gym and I work on mobility, not as much through yin, but I work on mobility more through trigger point work, and then through like a very slow, moderate vinyasa-based yoga with a little bit more muscular engagement than less. But I was really interested in what your process is. It's also the exact same thing for me too, which is how you spoke to it, which is for me, if if I use a yoga asana practice to build my conditioning level, I hurt myself. Because I'm in pretty good cardiovascular shape. So for me to hold my heart rate up intensely and consistently enough through yoga, I have to push myself in this ridiculously difficult way that is just not conducive to well-being. So I put, I take that physical demand outside of my asana practice for Mm -hmm. sure. And I didn't used to like you. I did it much more within the Ashtanga framework and that can work for some body types, but it didn't continue to work for my body types. It can work for some body types for some time too. Yes. I love the Ashtanga. I still love it, but yeah. it doesn't love me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Once I turned 50, I found it was not really helping me. So I had to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all these other things, whether you're going to swing kettlebells or at the gym or, or running and sprinting, they all can be yoga. Yoga is not for what sure. you do. Yoga is how you do what you do. I've been thinking lately about taking a photo of all the yoga props that I used to use and now all the yoga props that I currently use. And that right. includes, you know, resistance bands, resistance bands yeah. and pull up bars and kettlebells and foam rollers. Mm-hmm. And I still think of those as having a, a mindfulness component. I mean, I won't say that there aren't some vanities involved, but mostly I'm addressing like different people need different degrees of physicality to feel well and sated. And yeah. these are part of my ongoing discipline. 
Okay, I'm not usually the purest in the crowd, but I'm going to disagree. That's fine. Again, I mean, this is totally personal, but... but everything is yoga. <laughs> well, I just... <laughs> I do a lot more working out at the gym than I used to as well, to getting older and um, realizing the value of that for my body type. But it makes me need a pure meditation practice more. Like yes. I need a, just a sitting still practice. Like I can't, I don't get the, yeah, I don't get that as much. I understand. Oh yeah. yeah. I, 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 understand. I still include that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I've talked about the physical stuff of endurance, strength and mobility, but your mindfulness practice is very important too. Whether you do it as a regular sitting meditation every day, which I do, or you try to apply it throughout the day. So whatever you're doing, you do it mindfully. My most recent teacher has been Thich Nhat Hanh, oh. and I've been studying with him for the last 15 years, I nice. guess. Not so much in person with him, but with his monastics and his, his books and so forth. But he is, his is an engaged meditation. It's meditation and movement and motion. Mm. That's really something I, I strive to do is just try to remind myself to be mindful, which you can do while you're doing your yoga, while you're doing your sprints, while you're doing your mm-hmm. kettlebell and during your formal meditation practice. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Right now, I think the next thing for us to talk about is stretch, stress, ligaments. And right. just, right, and to kind of get to this, and I, I know this just ends up being such a sticking point. And I think the more time I spend with this, the more I think that it's the word stretch and the word stress that right. is, that I think both maybe present a certain challenge because I don't think that either presents an entirely clear picture. And I will acknowledge that by using the word stretch, I was not, I think, clearly articulating my concerns. So I'll get to two things. The first of which is the way our this first podcast came up was I have been pretty vocal for about the last year or two of just no longer feeling like as a yoga teacher, I want to help people increase their range of motion without helping people create strength at that end range of motion. And I also feel like I see so much in the yoga world. I see, I should say this, I see in the yoga world that I see, which is different than the world yoga world you see or other people see. But in the yoga world that I see, I see a pretty strong discrepancy between people's passive ranges of motion and their active ranges of motion. And so for me as a teacher, I just started to make this decision of, yeah, I want to help people increase their mobility, but I really want to back off passive ranges of motion. I want to focus more on active ranges of motion. I want to focus on serviceable, accessible ranges of motion, which means if I help people go further in their body, I want to make sure that at that end range, they have good strength and control to distribute the forces that are present. And so as a result of just kind of speaking about that and making a lot of posts about it, a lot of people reflexively then say, what about yin? And I never really wanted to answer that question. I never really thought it was my place. But then we ended up having that conversation and, and so it went. So I, I wanted to give you, you and the listeners some backstory about why we had that conversation. And it wasn't because either of us thought like, Let's take a stab randomly at Yin. It's yeah. because we it's because we always get asked that question in the context of me advocating for what I just spoke of, right? And 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 for some of the stylistic changes that I've made in my approach to teaching over the last 10 years. So 
in that conversation, I said, I think it's crazy. I think, you know, it's totally unscientific that people say that you should stretch your ligaments. And I think by me saying stretch, I played into not being clear. So I want to be clear, as clear as I can now, which is to say, I don't want people to lengthen their ligaments because ligaments have a very different elastic profile, except for some exceptions. So I want you to jump in, but here's what I feel. I feel like instead of saying stretch or even stress, maybe the conversation needs to change gears to a more neutral language, which is that of load and increasing tensile load or compressive load. And then the salient point being the issue of not whether we're stressing or stretching ligaments, but whether or not we actually want those ligaments to lengthen measurably beyond a certain degree. That's where I have the concern is the actual issue, not of exerting a tensile load on them, because that's inherent to almost everything, including normal life. But it's whether or not I want a discipline that turns off muscular control in order to produce more length within those less elastic fibers. Okay, well, there's about 43 things in what yeah, you just said I that I'd like to I talk know. about. <laughs> we'll give you put all the time yeah, you yeah, want. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, let me try to rehabilitate the term stress because it is a commonly used word and unfortunately has a very negative connotation in our culture because, frankly, most people overstress. So you think that stress is the problem. But, you know, in science, there's two types of stress. There's distress, where you're doing too much and you're damaging the system. And there's eustress. And eustress is a healthy amount of stress. We know you need some stress. I like to talk about the Goldilocks principle. You all know the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. She didn't like extremes. So, again, I say beware of the binary. Just because you can do too much, you could overstress tissues and enter the realm of distress, doesn't mean you should do nothing. Because with no stress, you invite atrophy. The tissues will degenerate and wear out. Uh, sorry, that's on the too much stress side. Atrophy is just where the tissues start to get reabsorbed. So all of our tissues, whether it's the immune system, the nervous system, the muscles, the connective tissues, all these tissues need a certain amount of stress to stay healthy. So we need stress in life. We shouldn't be afraid of stress. Sure. You should be afraid of too much stress, but you should also be afraid of too little stress. Now, when we talk about the connective tissues and the fascia, the ligaments, the tendons, these tissues also need stress. And to start to put into people's minds that they should be afraid of stressing these tissues, they may start doing too little. Now, with the muscles, often if you engage the muscles, you're doing that to take stress off the joint capsule, off the ligaments. An example Paul Grilly uses, if you just hold your right forefinger out and you tighten it really tight with your left hand, you can't move that finger. The muscles engage to protect the joint. But if you relax it and shake it out and keep it relaxed, then with your left hand, you can move the finger maybe to a 90-degree angle. So we can use the muscles to protect the joint and take stress off those connective tissues, or we can relax the muscles, as you do in yin yoga, to allow the stress to go into the joint because you need to stress these tissues. And I've got so many documents and studies that show the benefits of stressing ligaments, of stressing tendons of stressing the connective tissues of the fascia 
the, the effect it has on the water and the free radicals in the water, the effect it has on the fibroblasts that create these tissues, the effect it has on the nervous system and the pH levels. There's just been a lot of studies come out lately that show you need to stress your ligaments, your joint capsules. But yes, don't overstress them. Now, when you stress a ligament, it may stretch a little. I'm not, I don't really care if it stretches or not. My intention is to stress it. But in applying that stress, it may elongate. And that's good. The ligaments need to elongate. Yes, you can go too far. I think you cited the, the average of 10%. And that's a commonly cited average. But there are some ligaments, like the ligamentum flavum in the back, that can elongate 60 or 70% and should do that. There are other ligaments, you know, like your cruciate ligaments, that you don't want them elongating even 10%. The IT band gets a maximum about 3 or 4%, if even that. So it depends. 10 is just an average. But you do want to stretch these tissues. Like I just recently looked at a study by a guy named Tao who looked at the healing effect of stress versus time. And he was measuring the strain, which is the amount of elongation. And he tested at 3%, 6 9 and 12% for 1, 2, 3, and 4, 5 minutes. And he, his studies showed that these tissues heal more quickly if you apply a low stress, like 3% elongation, for a longer period of time. Huh. So 3% stretch for five minutes heals much better than any other combination. And that's what we're trying to do in the yin practice. We're applying a, a long-held static stress, not too much. We're not trying to get to any magical, mystical range of motion. Just put a stress into these tissues, let it linger, and it's making the fibroblasts who sense this stress more active, they lay down more collagen, which makes the ligament actually thicker and stronger. Just like a muscle needs to be strong, you have to strengthen these connective tissues too. But you can't do that so well in an active practice. This is something you do with the slow, long-held stresses. This is so interesting. I'm just like, I'm fascinated by this topic. Would you mind, I would love to see any links you have to any of those studies. Because one of the things I said to you in my email is, you know, having been in like the wellness space for a long time, and I worked for Yoga Journal for some time and looking at studies. I've seen so many studies about the benefits of stress, like on the immune system. You know, the fact that when we get small colds every once in a while, that's actually really good for the immune system and the benefits of stress on the bones through like weight bearing practice and load and things like that. I had, you know, I have never admittedly seen anything about the benefits of stressing ligaments. So when you're saying stress, you are talking about a tensile stress, not a compressive stress. Is that correct? Just so I can, you're talking about the stress that is produced from lengthening one thing away from another thing, not from shortening one thing towards another thing. In terms of this conversation with regards to connective tissues. Not, ne not necessarily, Jason, because we know bones are benefit from compressive stress. Of course. So I'm talking about stresses in all directions. It may be tensile, and maybe in one direction, or maybe in multiple directions, it may be compressive. The thing is you need to put a stress into the cells that produce the tissues. For instance, the, there's a couple of rock stars in fascia research that are more and more lately coming out with examples of why you need these long-held stresses. Uh, Robert Schleip, a professor at the University of Ulm in Germany, he's shown that if you stress tissues and ligaments for a couple of minutes, it starts to change the state of the water. Water is normally in a jelly-like state, a gel state, like jello. But if you apply a stress to it, it can start to change the state and become more liquid. It's called the soul state. 
When it's in the gel state, free radicals, which are the things that cause chronic inflammation, can build up, and the lymph system can't get at it because they're stuck in the jello. But when you liquefy the water through these long-held stresses, which can be compressive or tensile, the water liquefies, the free radicals flow out now into the interstitial tissues, and the lymph system neutralizes them and takes them away. But when it re-solidifies the water, it's now clear water. So but it starts to limit the chronic inflammation. I'm sorry. <laughs> couldn't you get the same benefit of creating more fluid state from just warming, like from doing like exercises that warm the tissues? If you can get the tissues up to about 40 degrees centigrade, yes. Huh. Okay. Which is what happens in a Bikram's class. Okay. Okay. But so, another guy named Antonio Stecco has found that if you go slightly above that, the hyaluronic acid molecules that keeps the water kind of in place, they start to gum up. They, they get very sticky. So you've got to be right kind of on that edge. And another way you can do it is through changing the pH level in the blood. But those are kind of hard to do. A simpler way is just, you know, in yoga pose. Huh. And how often do you think it's beneficial? Like how many times per week to do a yin practice, let's say, to get this kind of benefit? Well, that depends on the person and depends on their intention. I mean, we do yin yoga all the time. Mm -hmm. You're sitting right now. You're in one pose. You're putting a stress on your connective tissue, and you're going to do it for an hour. The waitresses stand on their feet all day long. You know, they may be putting a yin stress on the arches of their feet. We do yin yoga all the time. And you don't really ask a, a waitress, well, how often should you be walking on your feet or standing on your feet or a teller or somebody at the checkout at Whole Foods? You're just standing for long periods of time. That's putting a long-held static stress into the tissues. People who wore braces. They wore them for years. They didn't take them off every night. So how long? It depends on what you're trying to achieve. And it's not like a young practice where you need the muscles time to relax. You know, bones react. This is Wolf's Law from the mid-1800s. Bones react to the stress and lay down more bone in the lines of the stress. Well, there's a similar law defined by some guy named Davis around the same time. He said the things that happens to our connective tissues, ligaments, and tendons, lay down collagen along the lines of stress. So you need to allow that stress to be there so these tissues can get thicker and stronger. So one of the things I want to go back to, which is still within this conversation, right, is in the current context of modern yoga, when we step back, the vast majority of injuries that I see, I'm not suggesting that yin yoga produces more of the following types of injuries than other styles of yoga. But in the modern context of yoga, the vast majority of injuries that I see and that all of the doctors that I work with, so the sports medicine doctors, the traumatologists, the orthopedists, what they see in clinic are overstretch issues. And almost all of the overstretch issues are deformations or ruptures within the ends of the continuum. So they're almost always towards the end of the joints, right? We have a couple of things that we want to work with, which is, okay, we have this modern context of yoga. We have the primary injury mechanism of overstretch. We have the location of this primary mechanism of injury, which is often tendons and ligaments. And we also have this fairly well understood and agreed upon in sports medicine literature belief that the difference tissues within series, so fascia, tendon, ligament, bone, muscle, that they all have different elastic profiles and they have very different vascularity, right? 
So the concern that I'm still going to come back to is given that when I continue to see the majority of injuries happening from overstretch issues, I am very concerned about, about doing a practice that may contribute to that without also doing practices simultaneously that is building eccentric strength, right? So one of the reasons that the muscular engagement in my way of thinking is so important is that muscular engagement, especially eccentric strength, slows down the transmission and diffuses the transmission of stress across a longer area. And so for me, increasing greater mobility without simultaneously increasing greater strength and control and distribution of where that mobility is felt and experienced, that's something that for me, I I just personally, as a teacher, I don't feel comfortable with it. Like, I don't feel at all comfortable giving people the notion that that it doesn't matter how much they lengthen their ligaments. Like, I, I think that, that that can be a significant problem and feed into part of the common challenges that I see in the yoga room. Well, I would add to your list of tissues that could be damaged, uh, cartilage as well. Sure which could be damaged through impingements and repetitive stresses of that nature. But again, I would say be aware of the binary. Everything you just said is true, but that doesn't mean you should do nothing to these tissues. I agree that you need to work muscularly. We've talked about this already. Don't just do a yin practice. In life, you're going to need endurance. You're going to need strength. But let's not make people afraid of stressing their ligaments because if they don't, they're going to atrophy. So if you're not going to stress them in a yang way, because I agree with you during a vinyasa practice, these are when the, these tissues are more likely to be damaged. These tissues have enough resilience that you're hardly ever going to damage them doing a, a, a straddle fold. It's when you're jumping. It's when you have a sudden transient dynamic stress that you can overwhelm the ability of these tissues. Like take the ACL, for example. It can tolerate like 3,000 newtons of force. Like that's several hundred pounds of force. You're never going to generate that in the impose but you might in a skiing accident or on the football field or in tennis or in some more active vinyasa styles, you might put a transient stress, which is way higher than the, the tolerance of those tissues. But in the yin practice, we don't put anywhere near those levels of stresses onto the tissues, but we do stress the tissues. You need to stress the tissues or they're going to atrophy. I think one of the things that is kind of, you're making very clear, which I appreciate is that in the yin practice that you teach, it's it's not about glorifying the stretch. And this is, I think, where my my personal beef with the yoga community comes in, whether it's vinyasa or yin or whatever. I just think for a very long time, and I was part of it too. I mean, I was definitely part of it. We've just kind of glorified the stretch and and we all need to step it back. And as you said, really look at our intention and what we are trying to do so that we are doing things that make us our most functional. And so when you have talked about like not telling people to just come into Upavishta Konasana because they might come into like their deepest expression, but to just bring the legs apart. And, you know, th- that to me is just, um, it clarifies this idea of you're not doing yin to to get into deeper poses. You're not doing yin to get more flexible. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah. I like to say that we're trying to regain and maintain optimal health. Mm-hmm. It's not about maximum range of motion. Who cares about that? And one of the, the mentors I have is uh, Stuart McGill, Professor McGill at the University of Waterloo, who's now retired from there. But he likes to say that couch potatoes never hurt their backs because hmm. they never do anything. Mm-hmm. It's the athletes and the dancers. These people are doing crazy range of motion under load to their spine. They're the one who hurt their back. So it's, it's these extreme things that are more aesthetics that are going to cause the problems. Not if you're just looking for functional health. I just need enough range of motion to be able to get out of the bathtub, yeah. to be able to get my car, to be able to turn around and back up the car. I don't need to be able to put my feet behind my head. There's mm-hmm. no health benefit to that. So no yin class has those type of poses. Mm-hmm. We only got maybe 20 poses in the yin class or in the yin repertoire. You only have time for five or six in the yin class, but there's no foot behind head pose. There's no drop back to wheel pose. We don't have these extreme ranges of, of motion in these postures. We're just having shallow little things like a little sphinx pose so we can stress the bones in the back for five minutes. We're not trying to bring our head to our butt. So we're not getting to these extreme ranges of motion. But we are trying to get to a point where there is some stress because these tissues need stress. And time is more important than intensity. We don't have to go deep. In fact, if you're so deep you can't stay there, then you're not at the proper edge. You need to back off. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, also what I'm hearing in this conversation is that for you, the yin practice is is a component of a broader process focusing on health and wellness and embodiment. Yeah. Yin is one part of life. There's yin, the yang, there's the balance. And we're always moving between one to the other. So let me ask you just a, one more question, which is just ways in which you have seen the yin practice evolve and change over the years. Like for me, being in the vinyasa world and the Iyengar world for 20 years, I've seen really massive evolution in, I don't want to say poses, but in technique. You know, one of the things that I see is really different, especially amongst a younger generation of vinyasa teachers. I will say respectfully, like, the younger generation of vinyasa yoga teachers that I think are really skillful and smart, which is not everyone, but there is a community that's really skillful and smart. One of the things that I've seen them start to bring much more attention to is the value of stabilization and the value of active range of motion and sort of the inclusion of some basic functional training within the vinyasa world. So I'm just kind of curious, just as a point of evolution, have you seen just in the in the long tenure that you've had as a yin practitioner, what are some of the stylistic changes or evolutions, if any, that that you've seen? Like, is there greater inclusion of props? Is there greater inclusion of this or that? I'm just genuinely curious about how it's changed over the years. Yeah, I think all of that has been happening. I first met Sarah Powers in 2003. And in those days, she was kind of teaching at uh, yoga conferences all over the place. You walk in there with your mat. Uh, you didn't really have props. Yeah. So props were not really a big thing. But over the last 15 years, props have become more and more acceptable in yin, although not without its controversy, because a lot of people think props, it's restorative yoga. Mm-hmm. Now, in our view, props can either help you stay longer in a pose because you're not quite so deep. But you still want to feel something. Unlike in a restorative class, use props so you don't feel anything. Here, we still want to feel something, but maybe you can linger longer if you have a prop. 
but props can also be used to give you more sensation. So say, Andrea, when you're in your Upavista Kanasana straddle fold, you don't feel very much, but if you put a block underneath your calves and one underneath your elbows, maybe now you you build yourself a platform. Maybe you can go a bit deeper. Mm. Or you can put sandbags on your lower back. Maybe that will give you an edge where you wouldn't otherwise get it. So props definitely have become acceptable in yin yoga, which weren't there originally. Also, there's a thing out there now called hot yin, which Whoa. a lot of the people really? uh, oxymoron. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. It sounds like an oxymoron, but, you know, hot water is yin compared to boiling water. There is no absolute yin. It's all relative. And for some people, the only time they can actually get to an edge because they're so stiff is in a hot room. Hmm. You can get somebody you know, like me, if I'm really warmed up, now suddenly I can get past halfway in a forward fold and now gravity will take me down instead of having to use my stomach muscles to hold me up. And other people find that, you know, at 40 degrees centigrade, you know, the fascia does change and now you can get deeper into that fascia. Hmm. There are chemical changes that occur in a hot room. So I have no problem with hot yoga for some people. Right. For me, it doesn't do me any good. I pass out. I'm a pitta type, and in that much heat, I just don't do well at all. And for someone but like I'm not going to say for somebody else. And know. for someone like me, it could be problematic because I might not feel that I'm overstretching until I'm out of the heat, right? Like yes. Heat. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he yeah, on, that, a, he on that topic, Andrea, I, I like to say that there's three times people should look for pain. One is when they're in the pose. If there's any pain while you're in the pose, come right out. But also, notice if there's any pain when you're coming out of the pose because you may not notice it while you're in the pose. Mm. And the third is in the next 24 to 48 hours, if you're feeling pain, you have to think back, what was I doing in the last day or two that may have been contributing to this? So definitely, yin yoga is not for everybody. Nothing is. And not every pose is good for everybody. So if you're finding you're, you're having pain, you have to kind of stop and figure out, okay, what's causing this? Is it my practice? Is it something else I did? It was that leap I made on the snowboard the other day and kind of twisted something. Maybe that's what it was. So pain I think that's not great. Good. Yeah. I early on in my practice, I think I got injured so many different times. <laughs> and I, I never had I never had that wherewithal to I mean, it sounds so silly that I didn't think about it, but I don't think I would put together like I don't think I pieced together three days after an Ashtanga class in a really hot room, like why my sacrum hurt. It was just like, why does my sacrum hurt? What am I doing? You know. I just, I didn't, I wasn't that carefully observing and. It takes a long time to develop that sensitivity. It does. You it know does. what I mean? It's, 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 it's part of the learning process. Then. Yeah. And unfortunately pain is. The teacher. Yeah. I think the teacher has that responsibility to help teach the students how to pay attention to these things. I agree. I agree. Otherwise I, we bring the last straw for breaking the camel's back and ignore all the other straws that were there before. Yeah. I think, you know, going all the way back to the initial conversation of threshold, right. And your edge. If I'm being completely honest, like the way that I've gotten to know my edge is by going past it and injuring myself yeah. many times to figure out where it is. You know, I think, I think it's a convenient thing as yoga teachers to talk about finding your edge, but that presumes a lot of existing sensitivity, hmm. you know, and most of us learn certain lessons difficult. We learn about what are personal or physical or emotional boundaries are sometimes by transgressing them, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then over time sticking with us, sticking with a subject long enough that we are, are more skillfully in control and observant of the information that we're getting. Well, I call that the teenager effect. 
You know, I've been a teenager and I've been a parent of teenagers and I noticed teenagers never want to learn from their parents' wisdom. Yeah. People are wise only because they're older and they've had more time to screw up. Yeah. We tend to learn from our mistakes more than from other people's wisdom. But I believe as a teacher, it's your job to explain to students what the edge is. Like if I go up to a student and I see that they're kind of not comfortable in the pose, I'll ask them, what are you feeling? And they'll look up at me with a blank look on their face and say, fine. (laughs) kind of chuckle and say well that's great i'm glad you're feeling fine that's not what i asked you what are you feeling and they'll look off in the distance and i have no idea we're not trained to pay attention to the body right so then i'll have to be a bit more directive Mm -hmm. i'll say well we're trying to target the spine here do you feel anything along the back and they'll kind of say yeah well is it spread out is it one place is it deep is it superficial does it throb does it come and go is it hot is it cool is it burning you have to educate the students so they know how to pay attention. Definitely. But you're going to have teenagers and they're just going to go off and do their own thing. Right, 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 right. Um, I would love to to wrap up the conversation by talking about some of the psycho-emotional benefits of Ian. You had emailed me a study that I thought was really interesting, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Oh, the Yomi studies, yeah. yeah. And find that it's uh, basically it's a series of studies done by this group that looks at the psychological effects of a yin yoga practice, not the physiological effects. But just before I get into that one, if I could just give you one more rock star in the fascia world, her name's Helen Langevin, and she studied acupuncture for many years, which is a long held stress of a certain point. And then she started to do something very interesting. She put her subjects into a long held static stress of the whole body for 10 minutes twice a day. And she found that these people resolved chronic inflammation much more than the people who didn't. And then a few years later, she did another study. She implanted tumor cells into um, subjects and just a 10-minute stress once a day of the whole body over four weeks, there was a 52% reduction in the growth of tumors in the people that had the long-term stress. Now, these weren't human beings. These were rats. They were doing rats, doing like a down dog thing for 10 minutes a day. And apparently the rats loved it. But her studies have shown that just like with acupuncture, where you have a stress in there for 20 to 40 minutes, it does have a a cellular effect on the fibroblasts and the the status of the fascia. And cancer is transmitted through the fascia. So if you can change the quality of the fascia, you may interfere with the way cancer is transmitted. So as I said, there's a whole bunch of physiological studies that are going on now. Hmm. And I can send you some links to all of that. Sure, that'd be great. But the Yomi studies, um, that's, as I say, it's kind of different. They've done a couple of studies. Um, one was a five-week five study. It was done to reduce the effects of a high-stress type job or high-stress type lifestyle. And they found that it, it's similar to what we find in meditation, that if they're doing yin yoga on a regular basis, it also can turn off the stress factors, both physiologically and psychologically, that are associated with um, the stresses. In this case, they're looking at stresses of people who are suffering from non-communicable diseases. Oh, well, we mentioned this briefly in the, when Jason and I had the conversation, but I do think that for people who don't yet have a meditation practice or for if meditation is just not their thing, they don't have a meditation teacher, that doing a yin practice and doing that practice of really staying with whatever is happening and breathing through whatever is happening and noticing whatever is happening can really build up your mindfulness muscles. 
Sure. These are like little five-minute meditations. Mm-hmm. And people often say they don't have time to meditate, but they got time to do yoga. Right, right. Yoga into the meditation. Yeah. And in the Thich on mode, this is really mindfulness because you're paying attention to the signals your body is giving you. What am I feeling? What is this? Where is it? Is it good? Is it bad? Should I be here? Should I back off? This builds wisdom over time. I think I think in my experience of it too, right, which is one of the positives that that we spoke of in the original podcast is that the physicality, right? If I'm in seated meditation, if I'm in Sukhasana well-supported for five minutes, I feel the presence of my body. I have whole body spatial awareness, but it's subtle. Unless there's a part of my body that's irritated, it's it's subtle. But right. if I do that same thing in a front bend with proper support, that shape is providing me with more sensation. That sensation is providing me with an easier access point to redirect my attention time and time again. Mm. So I think that that the physicality of a yin practice makes certain elements of mindfulness easier mm-hmm. because there is some there is more sensory volume to attune your attention to, right? And so especially right. for someone like me that is is very physical and very tactile, it's helpful for me to ground my attention and my focus and my nervous system when I have something to plug it into. I like a wide open spacious mindfulness meditation, but it's harder for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's much easier to have have at least a little bit of sensory input and in a modern world I'm so long as it's in a balanced context, I'm I'm never going to think that stopping and paying attention for a period of time is a bad idea. Right. <laughs> you right, know what I right, mean? Right. Yeah, there's so many anchors we can choose to focus our attention on. It could be the breath, like most meditations. It could be sensations, which there are a lot of in yin yoga. It could be the feeling of energy. We didn't even talk about the energetic qualities of the practice. Mm-hmm. It could be just noticing the thoughts that are coming and going or the emotions in the heart. There's so many things we can choose. But I agree, Jason, that... In the in practice or in yoga in general, there's a lot of sensations. So they become kind of the default. Oh, what's this? See if I can just be with this for a while. I really do appreciate this conversation, just opening my mind a little bit to to some of this information. And is there anything I missed that you want to, to talk about? I think we kind of did a broad brush approach on a lot of different topics. I think for students who want to learn more, I'm just encouraging them to find a, a well-trained uh, yin yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there are a lot of yoga teachers out there that offer yin yoga, but they've not had any training on it. Often I've heard the story that the studio came up to them one day and said, we're offering yin yoga. Uh, you're going to teach it. Mm-hmm. What is it? I don't know. Here's a website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if they can find someone that's actually been trained in yin yoga, uh, I'm sure they'll find a lot of answers to any questions they have. Yeah. And I think this is a helpful conversation because you know, you alluded to definitely some elements that explain the training behind it. So I, I appreciate that. And I know all the listeners will too. Well, thank you, Andrew. And thank you for the invite. It was a pleasure to be, be here and chat with you and Jason. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk to you too. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening. If you appreciate the podcast, if it has an impact on your life and your practice, I so appreciate five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. I will put show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 154. Sending you lots of 
warmth and genuine appreciation. Until next week, enjoy your practice.